Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of Delta, the fixed income podcast from the International Business of Federated Hermes. It's Friday, the 4th of December, and this morning, iTrax crossover is on a bit of a tear and is round about 240 basis points. Um, yeah, that's a lot of tightening since we spoke to you last. It's been an incredibly busy month since we last recorded. And the markets have been boosted by um, the result of the U.S. election, Joe Biden's victory in the U.S., and and not being uh, holding Congress and the House of Representatives as well, which means that you know that we'll need to see a more balanced approach over the next couple of years. And there is a lot of um, positive noise also around vaccines. The first of which was approved this week um, for distribution in the U.K. And that's really um, supporting both equity and credit markets. Yet there's still plenty of uncertainty out there. And we remain cautious about the next six months, despite the market's optimism. One thing that remains constant, though, is the growing acknowledgement of the need to tackle climate change. There's been good news stories on that front as well over the last couple of weeks. But this episode is really us taking a deep dive into how energy debt issuers can transition to a low carbon world. Um, in our latest edition of the Spectrum report that we published, published last month, which you can read now on our website, we went into this topic in a lot of detail. And I wanted to bring a few of the participants of that report into the studio and to chat to you on the podcast. We also discussed the issue in our latest Credit Pulse webinar. And let's just look back at what Audra Delport, Deputy Head of Credit Research, had to say about the energy transition. In order for us to avoid the worst effects of climate change, scientists are telling us that we need to limit global warming to one and a half degrees. And in order for us to do that, we have to reduce our global emissions by 45% over the next decade, and then reach carbon neutrality by 2050. Okay, so that was Audra setting the scene in our most recent Credit Pulse. Today, we're here to discuss in a bit more detail what this means for oil and gas issuers. Now, I'm joined by Audra. Welcome, Audra. Hello, everyone. By Bertie Nicholson, who's our ESG and Engagement Associate. Hi there, morning. And by Nick Spooner, who's Climate Change Team Lead at EOS, our stewardship business. Welcome, all of you. Uh, hey, Nick. Morning, Jacko. Morning. Um, We'll talk about the outlook for oil and gas issuers and the impact of the outcome of the US of the US election on how we can use stewardship and drive positive change in that industry. But as an opening question, Audra, um, market update on what's happening out there in energy. Uh, very open. You know, what have we seen over the last couple of months? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. So. I mean, overall, if you look back uh, to the entire year, it's been a very challenging year for energy uh, with um, oil prices being very volatile. So um, energy returns haven't been that great if you look throughout the year. Uh, in the US, I think uh, last night I was looking, um, it's minus 4.3% versus uh, high yield index in mid fives. However, since their news about vaccine came out on November 9th, um, Energy has been a big outperformer. So um, oil since then um, has rallied uh, approximately 25% and energy credit has uh, outperformed the market by uh, approximately 80 basis points. And also, uh, well, this morning, also oil is uh, slightly higher because yesterday, after 
a week of intense debates, um, OPEC uh, reached an agreement um, yesterday to increase production by 500,000 barrels per day starting January. So um, it's actually good that they reached the agreement and sort of market uh, moderation continues. Great. So some rebalancing in the supply demand dynamic as we look forward and as we project forward. Um, great news for that part of the market. Um, coming to you again, Audra, why are firms so focused on net zero by 2050? And what paths do they have available to them uh, in this new low carbon era? Set the scene for us, please. Uh, yeah, sure. So I think as it was played in the clip a minute or so ago, so scientists are telling us that in order to avoid the worst effects of climate change, we, the planet, the people, we need to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. And that's um, this scientific sort of estimate. I think this is the main reason why increasing number of countries, as well as corporates, starting to develop policies and uh, announcing that they're going to do everything they can to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. Now, specifically, when talking about energy companies, in order for them to participate in the energy transition and reduce carbon footprint going forward, we see oil and gas companies pursuing four pathways. So number one, um, moving from being primarily oil and gas producer and shifting more towards energy producing uh, entities. So, you know, increasing um, non-carbon energy offerings such as renewables and um, uh, biofuels. Um, number two, um, companies, um, we see, you know, oil and gas companies continuing to produce, in, in, in which case we would call them carbon company. But at the same time, while they produce oil and gas, they can invest into carbon capture and storage of CO2. Now, this field is um, still in very early stages of development because there are no facilities of carbon sequestering that would allow um, carbon storage and capture on an industrial scale. And some of the oil and gas companies are investing into that. So, you know, we're watching that space quite um, uh, with a lot of detail. Um, Number three, uh, manage decline um, pathway. So firms continue to produce oil and gas, uh, continue to focus on reducing emissions, but at the same time, they reduce production over time in response to lower demand and slowly return capital to shareholders. And then the final one, which we haven't seen that much, is um, a new direction. So um, where oil and gas companies could would stop producing <laughs> oil and gas and would pursue completely new activities. But we haven't seen that. I think the most sort of pathways leading to the number one, number two, and number three. Got it. Thank you very much for that. And I don't know whether you want to pick this one up or Bertie wants to pick this one up. How does the US election result impact um, what these companies would do, particularly the US companies will do uh, given his promise of a clean energy revolution? Um, so when you look at uh, proposals, there are quite a few. Um, and most of them, I would say, are focused on incentivizing renewables. But the specific one that I am most worried um, as being an energy credit analyst um, is the potential for Biden to use executive orders um, to ban new permits and leasing on federal lands and water. And I worry about this one because some of our companies um, have upstream production coming from federal lands. 
effects. Now, after doing in-depth research on this topic, I actually think that outright ban um, of drilling and leasing on federal lands is actually unlikely. And ultimately, it will probably result in more strict permitting process or could could be completely delayed uh, for some time. And key reason for that being that, you know, at this um, stage, um, the ban would, would have a negative impact on employment and economy in certain states of um, the US. So just to give you know, further context, um, activity on federal land um, accounted for 20% of US oil output um, last year. And um, Gulf of Mexico offshore oil industry generates 30 billion of revenues a year and is associated um, of creating 300,000 jobs. So outright ban would be very negative uh, for, you know, for employment, for economy. So I don't think it's going to happen. And then if you actually look at um, Biden's transition website, um, the ban on drilling on federal lands is not included um, on the website while it was um, included on the campaign's website. So I think the policies are going to moderate. So that's one I think about a lot and then maybe Bertie can add. Yeah, just to add to Audra's point that uh, a democratic victory brings with it the, the Biden climate plan. And, and within this, he's looking to achieve a carbon-free generation economy uh, by 20, 2035 and also to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. Now, along with these targets, he's looking to inject two trillion uh, in over the course of the four years into the transportation sector, into the energy generation sector, and into the buildings. And he's trying to achieve clean energy in these areas. Now, what this means for these fossil fuel producing companies is that, first of all, there'll be a huge rise in competition from renewable energy firms. And also there'll be less demand for fossil fuels in the sectors that, that I've mentioned. So, uh, and then also in terms of these targets that he set for 2035 and 2050, uh, that means that there's huge expectations for regulations against carbon emitting firms to increase over the future as this plan is rolled out. And if I could maybe also add to Bertie's point, I think you know we saw California being the first state in the U.S. announcing that they will be banning um, the sale of um, petrol and diesel cars, uh, new cars, um, in 2035. I think with Biden coming on, becoming president and, and introducing the climate neutrality for the U.S., I think the pace of movement and states introduce, more states introducing the ban on uh, diesel and um, uh, petrol cars, I think will only accelerate going forward. Got it. Yeah, I mean, for me, this is one of the most exciting arenas there is within investment. But one of the things that really jumps out, um, even from the way in which we framed the questions, is that there is a very large difference between how the US and European companies are approaching energy transition. What would be the reasons for that? And you know, maybe uh, let, let's come to you, Audra, with that one first, and then I'll turn to turn to Bertie and ask him similar question about targets in the US and Europe. Um, Audra, you want to kick off? Yeah, sure. And I think Bertie will also add to this question if that's all right. But um, so um, I would say um, European companies are a lot more ad advanced and have done a lot more thinking 
regarding climate change and how they will tackle energy transition, while U.S. companies are only starting to do this. And that's evidenced by all European majors um, this year uh, announcing that they will be aiming for carbon neutrality by 2050, while only one North American company has done this so far, and they've just done it um, um, last month. Um, mostly, I would say, European companies have been focused on expanding their non-carbon offerings, such as investing in renewables, biofuels, while in North America and some companies in South America have been sort of staying away from renewables, focusing on reducing emissions and exploring more this um, carbon company, um, exploring carbon capture and storage. And uh, Bertie, do you want to add on sort of why we think there are different dynamics? Yeah, sure. I, I believe, uh, first of all, there's two reasons uh, for, for the huge difference in approaches. And I think it, it comes down to the, the different geographies sentiment towards climate change. So in, in Europe, we've, we've seen that there's, there's huge public pressure to uh, combat the, the risks that, that climate change create. Uh, and, and this has been translated into to shareholder pressure. So we're seeing shareholders and, and investors pressuring these energy and these fossil fuel companies to reduce their emissions and to set targets. Uh, and then uh, the second point is that uh, also the political environment is different. And uh, and this has seen the EU government set really ambitious policies. They, they've released their EU Green Deal, which is, is looking to set the continent onto a net zero pathway and achieve this in 2050. While the US, the they have been focusing on on gaining energy independence. They've they've had their shale shale boom, um, and now that they're not having to import as much energy, that this has been the focus for them. But hopefully, in the future, they they are following the democratic uh, victory. They'll they'll follow the EU suit and and now look to achieve this carbon neutrality as well. But they are slightly behind in in implementing this. Okay, Bertie, so you've been doing some work on individual companies and what they've been doing. Let's dive into some of the detail and some of the differences between the targets that different companies have set for themselves. Sure. Well, well as Audra mentioned, uh, the most eye-catching difference is the number of net zero targets, uh, with the EU having a clear majority of these. Um, but I, looking into it further, I think the more subtle difference is the the interim targets that uh, companies have set to make sure that there's an emissions reduction pathway to then achieve these net zero targets. What we've seen in the EU is that uh, there is a, a sort of 2030 goals, 2040 goals, uh, and uh, each of these steps to achieve this net zero target have a specific amount of emissions reductions and also ways in how to achieve this. Uh, this is actually missing um, with the US firms. And it, and it means that the net zero target that um, any US firms have set, uh, there is a less credibility to them because we're unsure how they will achieve that in the, in the meantime, because there are a lot of years in between now and achieving that. Um, and then just to go into the ways they're looking to reduce their emissions, the strategies are, are, are rather different too. So in the US, uh, there is uh, is quite common amongst these firms to look to reduce our emissions by uh, putting in 
carbon sort of gas capture systems and, and leakage detection systems, which, which is useful. It stops uh, methane and, and carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere, but uh, it doesn't necessarily reduce their, their production of, of, of fossil fuels. It's not going to help them transition to different energies. Whereas in Europe, uh, we've seen very comprehensive strategies with uh, certain amounts of investment being allocated towards low carbon fuels, uh, towards renewable energies. We've also seen that there have been large investments into uh, technologies like carbon capture systems, CCUS, which is carbon capture utilization and storage. And also I think we've uh, seen some of the companies or in Europe are announcing that they're going to be decreasing their oil production over the next decade. Uh, some of them already sort of aligning their production profiles with Paris Agreement. And we haven't seen that um, in, in the US yet. Great. Okay. So it sounds like uh, a lot of work has already been done on targets in Europe and that those targets are starting to solidify. I'm just trying to summarize what, what the two of you have pointed out. Those targets are trying to solidify. Uh, Bertie, you alluded to the fact that you have a higher degree of confidence around those targets in Europe because they're close, and therefore we can hold them to account in terms of those targets and understand how they might get there a little better. Um, whereas in the US, it feels like they're doing the easy stuff first and getting those easy wins, and that, but making some softer commitments about the longer term. So, Audra, if I can come back to you, uh, let's take a closer look at US firms. And on the whole, they seem less committed. Do you think that that's about to change now that we've got a, a different president in the White House? Yes, I think it will definitely accelerate the change and sort of the urgency to act, especially if Biden, as he said, that he will commit U.S. to net zero and rejoins uh, Paris Agreement. And again, over the last few months, we have seen a number of companies in the U.S. announcing ambitions for net zero for scope one and two. Um, and I definitely think that more companies will follow because, you know, we had another company announcing targets yesterday. So it's every week it's it's picking up. Um, and then also it's not only because of Biden's policies, but it's just, well, overall, the rising policy risk, that's definitely a fact, but also increasing investor interest in climate change. And I think probably most, you know, core reason that all these companies realize that energy transition is a strategic um, threat for oil and gas companies, and they have to address it. You know, it's better if they do it sooner than later. And in order to sort of attract investors uh, and sort of communicate to the markets how they're going to navigate over the next uh, few decades. Okay, let's dive back into your um, heartland again, Audra, of of credit work. What do you look out for in terms of credit profiles in those US, smaller US high yield issuers? Yeah, sure. So uh, now, given our sort of views on the space overall, we are looking for scale. We're looking for higher quality assets with low break evens. We're also looking for good liquidity, strong balance sheets, as well as uh, potential leaders in sustainability initiatives, whether they're setting net zero targets for scope one and two, uh, you know, using water, um, recycled water in their operations, electric fracking fleet. Um, but so just 
again, taking a step back, this year has been very interesting in terms of energy investing because there were a number of investment-grade companies that were downgraded to high yield um, due to decline in oil prices. And um, those companies have the qualities that we are looking for. Again, scale, uh, low break-evens, and over this year, they've been trading at very attractive valuations. So we've, we've spent quite a bit of time looking at those sort of fallen angels. Okay, great. Thank you for it for that. Um, back to you again, Bertie, and then uh, we'll turn to Nick. Uh, are there any US high yield companies that have recently altered their business strategies? Are there any good examples that you can give of, of people who are moving in the right direction as far as we're concerned within that space? Yes, Jacko. So what I've seen um, in the US and actually what Audra mentioned is that there is now proof of, uh, of, of two front runners who have released net zero uh, targets in the US. And, uh, and from these targets, I've seen that, that there still isn't that interim targets to uh, set up the pathway to achieve that goal at the end. But, uh, but they have released strategies to show how they are going to reduce their emissions. One of these uh, strategies is to use CCUS, which is the carbon capture utilization and storage system, which right now, as, as Audrey mentioned before, is, is costly, but, um, but with significant, significant investment and, uh, and innovation, they are looking to reduce the cost of this and, uh, and use it to prevent their emissions and then also to sell on the carbon that is, that is captured. Um, and then another strategy that another firm is, is using is uh, using carbon sequestration, which is uh, the, the, the capturing of carbon by uh, using carbon sinks such as forests. Uh, another example is, is uh, the sea, which is a, a very strong carbon sequestrator. Uh, and um, this uh, will offset their emissions. So they will still be emitting emissions, but they will also be uh, owning forests that, that will capture the same amount of, of emissions, hopefully by the end of that goal. Um, now, personally, with this goal, I, I do see that it's, it's less sustainable than, um, than those we've mentioned in the EU, because it doesn't show that they're going to uh, have any form of, of, of transitioning towards cleaner energies. Um, and so in terms of uh, sustainability for the firm, uh, it means that uh, they are still at risk to the to reducing demand of fossil fuels in the future. Great. Thank you very much for that, Bertie. And um, we've left Nick long enough on standby. Let's turn to you, Nick, and discuss the stewardship angle. So just for, your, for the listeners again, um, the EOS team that we have at Federated Hermes is a stewardship and engagement practice that act on behalf of not just our investment team, but on behalf of um, a trillion dollars worth of uh, investor capital and go and speak to companies. Nick, can you explain how EOS is seeking to engage with these energy companies and how we're trying to change their strategies and encourage them to develop towards those aspirational net zero targets? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a great question. Um, we've been engaging with these companies, recognizing that of all of the sectors that we engage with, uh, the transition to a low carbon economy is probably uh, most significantly going to impact these companies, creating sort of high degrees of value at risk for for these organizations. And so it's um, our role really to help them manage that and reduce the risk and reduce any sort of negative impacts to shareholder value, but also uh, produce positive returns in the long term. So 
Audrey and Bertie have done a great job at sort of setting the scene and talking about the sort of macro picture with regard to uh, the impacts to demand that we'll see with regard to transitioning um, coming from sort of electric vehicles or uh, decarbonizing the power system, et cetera. And so I think a few years ago, we started off by engaging with these companies just to really recognize what these scenarios could be. We engaged with them to produce these scenarios themselves, um, engage, um, asking them to produce a, ver- a range of high carbon scenarios showing the impacts that climate change would bring to their organization and the social impacts that would cause as well. Uh, as well as a number of transition scenarios. So uh, transitioning at different speeds to a, a low or zero carbon economy and how that would impact their portfolio over time. Now we're going further in terms of how these companies do that in terms of what targets they set. But it is tricky. Bertie's already mentioned the differences between those targets and uh, the need for standardization between those methodologies. But at the same time, we need to allow for that flexibility between those different business model options that Audra des- d- described at the beginning. Um, because whilst there is sort of a lot of opportunities within the low carbon transitioning, low carbon transition, building out renewables, et cetera, not all companies will be able to transition and they'll be they're entering a highly competitive market within the utilities and electricity business as it is there's also a big question that we haven't really answered as to whether these companies transitioning whether they have the skills to do that whether they have the human uh resources and uh technical resources to to make that transition so we have to engage and allow for flexibility within those strategies and the way we do that is focusing on production and looking at sort of lower demand curves going forward and how companies can align their capital investment to those lower demand scenarios uh, along what we call a a carbon supply cost curve. So thinking about where uh, each company sits on that carbon supply cost curve and making sure that capital is is constrained to only those most competitive projects. Well, that was a very complete answer. Thank you very much for that, Nick. You can tell how much you are into this and how detailed you are. Um, Audra, what do you get from uh, Nick's engagement? How is it valuable to you as an investor in uh, in some of these companies? Yeah, sure. So I think um, when we um, come to the meetings with Nick and um, the rest of his team, uh, it sort of allows us to better understand how serious and how strategic companies are about addressing the energy transition. I think especially it's useful for uh when we're engaged with U.S. companies that are not as advanced, so we, you know, and they haven't clarified exactly how they're going to address it. So during the conversations with the companies, we get a sense whether companies are leaning more towards sort of becoming, well, moving their uh, business towards managed decline or potentially carbon company, because again, it's early stages. Um, Also, uh, sort of, Meeting with companies allows us to um, assess whether the company's addressing it, the transition at the board level. You know, how are they doing it? Uh, whether, you know, how are they working with the policymakers? Uh, whether they're sort of inviting leading world experts to present to the board to inform the views about transition and climate change. So just sort of how serious companies are about it. And some some companies are more uh, more serious and some companies are sort of don't really acknowledge um, that oil demand is likely to decline um, in the future. So it, it just gives us a good sense um, uh, about 
different companies' uh, views. So does that feed into your um, ESG analysis and your ESG views of some of these companies, that sort of degree of confidence that you have around whether they're taking this stuff seriously? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, engagement is part of our uh, ESG assessment and analysis. So uh, all the meetings that we participate with EOS together, it's definitely part of that. And again, it sort of just helps us understand how serious certain companies are versus others and that affects our ESG scores, our positioning. Um, uh, Yeah. Perfect. Thank you very much, Audra. Um, Let's turn back to you, Nick. Um, What type of companies have you had the most success with? Is there a difference between US and Europe? Is there a difference between integrated energy and pure NP? Give us, give us a sense for maybe where you've had most success and then touch on where you have had less success. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of our engagement is through an initiative called the Climate Action 100 Initiative, which is a collaborative engagement initiative with sort of upwards of 50 trillion worth of assets under man- management supporting it. Um, and we co-lead a number of engagements, particularly with oil and gas companies under that initiative. Most of those companies are being sort of the largest companies in the world essentially are integrated oil companies. And that's where we probably had the most ex- success. Um, I think the benefits of engaging with the IOCs is that these companies have sort of vert- vertically integrated across the value chain and so have the ability to transition in different parts of the value chains. For example, we're seeing a lot of Europeans use the retail arm of their business to expand into uh technologies and services such as electric vehicle charging whilst on the upstream side we see we're seeing them use sort of their geotechnical skills for offshore wind development as well so i think that because they're spread across the value chain quite considerably and the same could be said for refining as well that gives them the ability to pivot in a number of different places and diversify therefore reducing risk from perhaps the upstream oil oil production, oil and gas production uh, that poses the greatest risk from the energy transition. Okay. Uh, And, you know, what's your outlook for getting those US firms to start listening and and engaging more with you after the administration change? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there has to be multiple areas of pressure, really. We've talked a bit about the policy, and I think there's going to be increasing policy pressure on enhanced disclosure as well. we can't discount the sort of social pressure that Bertie mentioned in terms of uh, that being a big driver on the transition plans of European companies as well. And there's also investor pressure and investor sentiment. And there's a difference between the pressure that the US firms feel from the US investor base. And we hear this from the companies themselves versus uh, the the sentiment of uh, European investors on European companies. So going over there, the the conversation is more challenging. I think what we'll see is that the um, success in terms of the share prices of those companies that are transitioning early and making those early steps in terms of managing climate-related financial risks will be the precedent for these other companies to follow. And they they realize that they can't carry on uh, with the same tune and ignoring uh, the signals that the energy transition are giving off with regard to demand for their product. Yeah. Okay. And I'm going to throw one more question in, uh, Nick, given that we've got you. 
how do you feel like going into these engagements with energy companies now versus six months ago, a year ago? Is it is the tide moving? Is that is the momentum there? Yeah, I I feel incredibly positive to be honest because there has been so much movement over the past even the past 12 months if you think about sort of the number of net zero commitments that have come out from these companies so the momentum is is clearly there and that that's a really positive thing and we only see that going sort of in one direction catalyzed by uh the Biden administration in the US as well catalyzed by the increasing social awareness of the climate crisis as well so um it's been really encouraging to be working with these companies. There's still a long way to go. Um, a lot of these companies' business models are still misaligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement, even those that have set net zero targets. Um, so whilst there's still a long way to go, and whilst these companies still have a lot of risk in their portfolio, uh, it's really pleasing to see the progress that they have made. Yeah, I feel that same sense of enthusiasm and energy. I, it really feels like we've we've arrived at a critical point in terms of the way in which investors are behaving, in terms of the way in which some governments around the world are behaving and that companies are starting to understand that they need to listen. Um, much of the work that, that you and others within the team and, and, and other investors have been doing has, has been you know, critical in arriving at those companies, understanding how important it is for them to listen. Um, Audra, let's close with you. Uh, there's clearly a lot of macroeconomic uncertainty. If the oil prices remain low, what does this mean for energy firms, their transition strategies and their credit profiles? Does it place further pressure or incentivize them further to change their business models? Yeah, so I think, I mean, if oil prices will remain low, um, companies will focus on lowering their costs and sort of just surviving. So uh, I think it's going to be, especially for the smaller companies, it's going to be a lot more difficult to address longer term strategic energy transition questions. Um, so I think the way I see it sort of evolving, I think um, companies that have greater scale, lower costs and have some capital and some time to sort of think about transition, I think they'll be the, the first ones to address transition strategies, especially in the US. But also, I think, you know, over the last um, few months, we have seen seven deals in energy, um, seven consolidation deals, because companies, you know, understanding that as oil demand uh, structurally declines over time, scale and lower cost um, is going to be key. So I think we're going to continue seeing that. And then again, as companies have sort of time and um, liquidity um, sort of to think about energy transition, I think the bigger companies will be the ones that sort of change their strategies and then only then the smaller ones will follow. Thank you, Audra. Thank you for that. So we got to the end of recording our podcast and then we realized that there's actually a ton of technical jargon out there for anyone who's reading or listening to anything about this topic. So we thought we'd do a little explainer for you and well, we, Nick will do a little explainer for you of some of those technical terms that you may hear uh, as you get into this energy transition space. So Nick, over to you. Thanks, Jacko. Yeah, so just to pull apart some of these terms that you will have heard, and these are what really uh, differentiate some of the targets that Bertie was talking about as well. So when we talk about the different scopes of emissions, there's scope one, 
two and three emissions. Scope one are the emissions uh, of a company when they're combusted on site using gas or oil or other fossil fuels. Scope two is generated from the electricity that is purchased in and used on site. And scope three is everything else. So this could be value chain emissions related to the production and combustion of oil and gas, such as when we drive our cars down the road, for example. But it all can also can be uh, with regard to the steel that's used within the oil and gas industry as well. Mainly when we talk about scope three emissions within the oil and gas sector, we're talking about those emissions that are produced through the burning of oil and gas by the power sector, by the transportation sector and others. The other piece that we ought to sort of unpack is the difference between absolute and intensity targets and what that means for the oil and gas sector as well. So absolute targets refer to an absolute reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, whilst uh, intensity targets uh, refer to a reduction in emissions per unit of something else. And within the oil and gas sector, we're seeing a lot of scope three intensity targets that are focused around reducing carbon emissions per unit of energy, energy produced. Um, and we're seeing this amongst many of the European companies that Bertie spoke about earlier. And so this is important because there are challenges with both an absolute target and an intensity target. So if we are to set scope three absolute targets, that really is a lock on production. And it might be against uh, the compat competitive nature of an oil and gas company to set a scope absolute scope three target and limit its production that way. On the other hand, when we talk about the scope three intensity target, that is really inferring that these companies are going to transition into another company, transition into a low carbon economy in lo low carbon company, therefore reducing the carbon intensity per unit of energy produced. And as Audra mentioned, that is just one option that is open to these companies and not necessarily the best option for shareholders and bondholders. Fabulous. Thank you very much for that, Nick. I feel fully educated and ready to go and dive back into this incredibly complex but fascinating topic. I'm left feeling quite unnaturally positive. <laughs> as, as listeners to this podcast, no, I, I like being miserable much more than I like being happy. And I guess that's why I'm a fixed income credit investor. But I am left with this sort of nagging doubt about climate change, this nagging doubt about biodiversity. It really weighs heavy on my mind when I think about the future that we're leaving for the generations to come and the impact that um, what we as a species have done to our planet. But this is one of those areas where actually, as an investor, as a financial markets practitioner, I feel like we're moving in the right direction. I think we're facilitating and driving change in the right direction. And the three of you are part of that. Thank you all for coming on and sharing what's happening in this incredibly fascinating and critical space. If we are to achieve the objectives that um, governments have set and, and we are supporting uh, this will need to work. So please keep pushing. Uh, I know the listeners will have enjoyed hearing the detail. I'd encourage listeners to look out for that um, spectrum piece on our website. And I look forward to speaking to you in 2021. Uh, it's been a crazy year, crazy, crazy 2020. Um, never experienced anything like it before in my career in terms of the downs as well as the ups and uh, let's close there thanks everyone speak to you again soon 
Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the international business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.